Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In 1999, filmmaker Davy Rothbart met Emmanuel Sanford Durant and his older brother Smurf during a pickup basketball game in Southeast Washington, D.C. Davy began filming their lives, and soon the two brothers and the other family members began to use the camera themselves. Spanning 20 years, this story illuminates a national and ongoing crisis through one family's raw, stirring, and deeply personal saga. Made from more than 1,000 hours of footage, it all starts on the streets where they lived in 1999, 17 blocks behind the U.S. Capitol. Boy, is that relevant in so many different ways. The, the title of this film, uh, although you couldn't have anticipated how much the U.S. Capitol would play into our national story, right. it does now. And the film, again, is called 17 Blocks. And we're joined today by the director and producer of 17 Blocks, and that would be Davey Rothbart. Davey, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Well, I read a little bit of the backstory as to how you got involved in the family life of uh, the Sanford Durant family. But uh, tell me a little in a little more granular detail. Were you sure. why were you in Washington, D.C.? At that yeah, uh, you know, I was I was a couple years out of college and um, I was staying on a friend's couch in D.C. I was trying to write a novel. I, you know, there was there was no real plan. My friend lived a few blocks from this basketball court. And so I probably spent more time on the basketball court than I did writing a novel. <laughs> and, uh, basketball is great because it unites people and you, you know, you get to meet a lot of different people. And, you know, Smurf was just a few years younger than me. He was 15. We hit it off. His, his brother, Emmanuel, was nine, would always kind of watch through the fence and beg to play. And we would usually say, no way, <laughs> unless we really needed an extra person to fill out the game. Then we might let him in for a little bit. But they, but they were both really kind and, and outgoing and friendly and, and one day they said, you know, why don't you come home and, and uh, you know, have something to eat at our house? So I went I went home and joined them for dinner. Their mom, Cheryl, I got to meet her and, and their sister, Denise. And we just had a fun time. You know, I hung out for a few hours. And at the end of the night, they said, you know, I think Cheryl said, why don't you come back tomorrow? And I did and kind of just kept coming over. We'd play basketball every afternoon and then I'd go over to their house. I And we, we just hit it off. Now, at the time, I, I just got my first video camera. And I was, I was interested in filmmaking, but I, I hadn't studied it. I didn't know anything about it. But... And it was nothing fancy. It was just like a little, you know, to use little video cassettes. And, you know, this is 1999. Um, but I wanted to learn how to use it. And, and I brought it over to the house. And the kids, so Emmanuel, Denise, Smurf, took a lot of interest in the camera. Emmanuel, especially. He, he was a very curious, inquisitive, like nine-year-old kid. And so me and him just started filming almost every day. You know, we would walk around the neighborhood, talking to people. We would sometimes film in the apartment. Like, I would interview Emmanuel. And then he would sit on the other side. And he would interview me. And it, it really was just one activity among many that we like to do together. But sometimes I would leave the camera there overnight or weekends. And I started watching the footage that, that all, Emmanuel, Denise, and Smurf, but especially Emmanuel was, was shooting it. As a nine-year-old kid, he would shoot these really kind of lyrical images out his window. And, and he, he had definitely had a poetic eye. Still, we had no plan for trying to make a movie, really. It was more, I would say, home videos. And that, that continued for years, really. Even after I moved out of D.C., I'd come back and visit them, and, and we would we'd pull out the camera and film some more. 
Was there something about the family dynamics? Was there something, I mean, besides the fact that they were so willing to embrace you as, as far as you coming into their home and being a part of their family, was there something about the internal dynamics that drew you to them? Was there something more? Was it the circumstances that you saw that they were living through or what was it? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, those are great questions. Um, at first, even when we would film, me and Emmanuel would make up little stories and try to film like little narrative films. But I quickly found that the most interesting thing I thought was just what was actually going on with the family. And like, I, I don't often have a chance to get into this, but it was at the time the family had been struggling and living even homeless for periods before, right before I met them. Then they had a chance to move into this old woman's apartment because uh, she needed nursing care and Cheryl was a trained nurse. So, so Cheryl, in exchange for the nursing care, was able to live there and bring her, her three children. But it was then soon after they moved in, and even before I met them, the woman got sicker and ended up in like a, like a nursing home or like a hospital, basically. It was clear that that woman's family was going to soon sell their place once she passed away. There was a very narrow window. I could see, you know, they all knew that this was temporary. They had this pretty nice apartment in what's actually a better part of Southeast DC, you know, like not quite as rough as some of the places they'd lived before, but they knew it was very temporary. So there was something about that dynamic about, you know, Emmanuel was like really luxuriating and having his own bedroom for the first time and like living and exploring this new neighborhood, but also knowing that they wouldn't probably be there for long. You brought up the neighborhood and I read a little, little bit of the backstory. This was Southeast DC, Washington DC is what tell us a little bit about in terms of sure. the characteristics of this particular neighborhood. I think it was well, identified in a specific way, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really striking because just the geography of it is that where they lived, 17th and Kentucky Southeast, it's 17 blocks from the U.S. Capitol building. So, I mean, you can literally go over one block to Pennsylvania Avenue and you can look up and you see the Capitol Dome. I mean, it's just, it's right down the street. And yet this neighborhood is, it's really, especially in, you're talking 1999, you known for its gun violence that there's a really powerful article in the Atlantic magazine at the time called notes on the murder of 23 of my neighbors. And it's about, you know, 23 people being shot and killed in that neighborhood, um, right, right where they lived um, over the course of one year. There's some housing projects like a couple blocks away that have been called like the, the most uh, dangerous projects or the most in the, in the country, you know, so it's, but it's just striking that it's so close to the Capitol and like, you know, us congressmen, us senators, they live a few blocks behind the Capitol. Basically, the family lives 17 blocks behind the Capitol, but, yeah. but you have U.S. senators living eight blocks behind the Capitol. So it's really just a span of a few blocks where, where everything changes quite dramatically. It's really quite remarkable uh, to think that in the most powerful country on the planet, the richest economy, the most, the most of so many things in the world that literally within walking distance of the Capitol and not too terribly far from the White House, you have these conditions. And it's not as if this just happened in the last few years or hasn't continued to this right. day to be one, a blight on our country. I, and yeah. it's not- you, you, it's, Thank you. You, you've, you've, you've articulated it more clearly than I've ever been able to. But yeah, I, I feel absolutely the same way. And I think the title of the movie is in some ways a provocation to those in power and saying, you know, like, hey, pay attention to what's happening in this, sh you know, 17 blocks from where you're going to work every day. You know, this- this matters and, and the solutions to a lot of these institutional challenges facing communities like the Sanfords and, and Southeast DC. We can support grassroots organizations that are doing amazing work to reduce gun violence and you know 
but but the, but these are larger issues that that need support from governmental structures. You know, it's a yeah. I I mean to the the idea, and I don't want to dwell on this too much because I do want to talk about the film. But you literally are walking; they're stepping over the bodies of people on their way to work in order to craft legislation that, if they wanted to. You know, don't build an aircraft carrier. How's that? And then yeah. we can, and we can begin to address some of these things. We've been working with every town for gun safety has become a partner of the film, and and <laughs> Michael Sean Spence, who uh, one of the directors of, of that great organization, um, he he often talks about gun violence as a symptom of the problem. Increasing money for childhood education, other other opportunities, even even recreational opportunities, like you know, building a rec center in a neighborhood like that actually makes a, a big difference. It costs money, but it doesn't cost that much. And and you're right, like congressmen and senators are the ones deciding how that money is allocated and they need to recognize. You know, and the thing that's so infuriating for me about it is it's not as if we don't understand the formula for success in neighborhoods. It's not as if we haven't done enough right. sociological anthropological kind of surveys and understanding what makes a neighborhood good and what makes it bad and why the what those conditions are we know what they are we know what we need to address absolutely yeah. and more policing is 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 something that i think people have thought is you know can be the answer and and it's you know it's it's obviously not you know but i think you're absolutely right and and i'm our hope is that the film will make people think in those terms yeah it's is a deeply emotional film the soul of this film is Emmanuel. And it I'm not gonna say more than it takes your breath away where where what happens to Emmanuel in, in more ways than than one. Uh it represents so much of what we're talking about here. Well no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're actually it's good to be able to talk about the larger issues around the film, but I think what's what's special about it to me is the the Stanford family has d- done us a great service by sharing their lives so intimately, so mm-hmm. rawly. Cheryl said, I just want people to be able to walk in my shoes. And I think that's the opportunity she's given people by sharing her story and her family's story in, su- in such rich ways. Like, you know, you really are walking with them over 20 years when they face challenges, when, you know, when they experience mm-hmm. joys, great triumphs or great heartbreak, like you, you feel like you're experiencing it with them. And so I think through an individual story, and this was Cheryl's whole idea, you know, Cheryl always in, insisted that we film even the most painful and raw moments and the me and, and her children continue to keep the camera going. And so, you know, I think she she recognized that the power of an individual story to to speak to these larger truths about society as a whole. Right. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with the director and producer of a remarkable documentary film. I mean, truly, um, it just just tear your heart out. It's called uh, 17 Blocks, and we're speaking with Davey Rothbart. You know, watching the film and watching all of these things that are happening to these people, um, Cheryl's a good person. She's dealing with uh, some alcohol, drug issues. You get to know these people well enough to understand enough about their life to understand what's happening and and to some extent why well, the thing that the the word that kept coming back to me was as i was watching them is chaos you know it's hard to get a grip on going to school getting a job taking care of yourself when your life is chaotic as chaotic as their lives are in terms of just basic services yeah. putting food on the table when you're dealing with constant chaos which I think is not and would not be unheard of for almost all of the people living in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you find a way out? How do you get a grip on what you need to do? Yeah, the, the challenges are so steep. 
and um i you know there's even scenes that didn't make it into the movie but that i think helped convey exactly what you're talking about you know denise one of the jobs she had was working at a at a daycare and and to get there required three buses and like two hours right. each each direction so i mean it she is an incredible woman and she, but just the fortitude it requires to find a way to you know navigate all of these challenges it's it's really tough and you can see how it, it's it's easily overwhelming you know yeah and, if you if that's your daily life is to get on three buses take two hours just to get to work i yeah. hop in a car i'm where i need to be and whatever the traffic will allow i have yeah. that i make those decisions somebody like cheryl it's not in her hands to make you, even yeah even Smurf, smurf's commute to work is about an hour. Uh, sometimes he's able to drive and it's closer to an hour but when he's he often takes metro and it's an hour and a half now he's been doing that for five years and and he's recently promoted to manager of, of the store like he's 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 doing he's flourishing he's doing incredibly well but oh good the the pull the pull yourself up by your bootstraps myth is is a myth you know it's, it's like it, it's really not that simple it's what we see in 17 blogs. We see some, the tip of the iceberg for people who are in, in trying to do the right mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, with Emmanuel and Carmen, you know, you see the what if in this film and you could just see, and then you see the rest of the sort of collateral damage that this way, the things that they're dealing with has on all of them. But Less people think this is a not. It's not a downer film. It it had it, it just they're watch. We're watching people's lives in real time, but it's not a downer film for me. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of hope, and and I mean the family shows the resilience. I, I think they're a special family and especially resilient. But I think yeah. Cheryl's generous, you know, and 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 maybe you know right. She's you know she says that resilience exists in everybody, you know, and and that even when you deal with life's biggest blows, like you know you you can find a way to to come out the other side. And, you know, the fact that the family, even with all the really in, intense challenges they faced that and heartbreaks they've suffered, you know, to see that they've still find, found a way to flourish and find joy. And, and really, you know, these children, now it's Cheryl's grandchildren, Smurf and Denise's kids, they're, they're wonderful kids. They have bright futures. Mm -hmm. um, their lives still hang in the balance because they're growing up in the same neighborhoods that real family members of theirs have had tragic fate, but there's still a lot of hope and, joy and yeah i think the film expresses that i'm glad you brought cheryl in as a producer of the film i think that was a yeah, wonderful on on your part as a the filmmaker it was cheryl's idea to just keep the cameras running all wow. the time and I, i'm glad you know yeah of course she's a producer this is the whole film is basically her idea you know it's been it's been a special collaboration and and, and i'm really glad they're they're doing well the kids are doing well what actually one of the special things for me yeah just my son is two and a half years old and and uh, seeing Smurf and Denise's kids, the, the the love that they treat my son with is really, really wonderful. Because I remember when they were Justin and Kale and all, I'd tell them I used to change their diapers because I did, you know. And now now seeing them play with my son and treating him like family, like that means a lot to me. It's amazing. It's an amazing, uh, what, what an adventure this, for you personally, putting yes, aside the yeah, filmmaker it, part it, of totally. it. Totally. Yeah. I'm very yeah. lucky to have my, my own family, which is wonderful that I grew up with in my house. But this adopted family uh, as well. It's, it's, I'm, it's been very special. The film opens, 17 Blocks opens this Friday, uh, February 19th. 
and I've, I urge you to to see this film. The distributor is uh, yeah, M- MTV Documentary Films. Yes, um, sorry, and and it's going to be in it's it's in almost a hundred cities. Uh, if people could go to their local theater, their great art house or independent theaters, the Alamo Draft House, Angelica. Um, Lemley, Here in Los Angeles, Lemley, which yeah, we, the, all the Lemley uh, theaters will, will be carrying the film. So you just you can go to the website of the, of uh, Lemley or or any of these theaters, and uh, and they can stream the film from home. So seventeen blocks film dot com. Okay, seventeen blocks film dot com, and we're <laughs> actually just adding all the list of cities and theaters this week. Yeah, we we just can't wait to, to share the film with people. Davy Rothbart, I. Thank you so much for the film. It's an amazing. You you went through a thousand hours of of uh, footage to get us what we got, distilled version of all of that, and it's a beautiful film. It is absolutely Thank gorgeous, you, and it, it uh, really really means a lot to hear. Uh, congratulations, and I know you have worked on a number of other projects. I hope you'll come back when you've got something else ready for the world. So I, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll make sure to get your info. And and, um, and and thank you from the Sanfords as well. I told them we'd be talking today, and they really appreciate you shining a light on the film. So, oh, my pleasure. The film again is called Seventeen Blocks, and we've been talking with the director and producer, and that would be Davy Rothbard. Thank you, Davy. Thank you. Great talk. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.